My guest this morning is uh, pound for pound, been described pound for one of the best journalists in the country, Jimmy Breslin. Of course, his name is known to millions now. We think of Jimmy Breslin as a columnist who had his own style, but mostly has a marvelous sense of indignation fused to a sense of humor. His previous two books of the gang that couldn't shoot straight, and then came the book about Ireland. That prayer, I can't forget, Amen. We're without Jim, end, Amen. We're without end, Amen, that the prayer the, that Jimmy used to recite so quickly. And there's a study, uh, you know, a member of the uh, 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 oh. a policeman in New York who suddenly finds himself on the short end of the stick in Ireland. And his new book, and this is a quite surprisingly, surprisingly as it caught on, surprising to Jimmy, though not to others who know his work. And the, and the new book is The Good Guys, you know, How the Good Guys Finally Won, and Viking the Publishers. And it's more than just another book about Watergate. It's about something else called Power and the insights of Breslin and the program in just a moment after this message. in the hole, and we seem like a strange way to open a book that deals with uh, some of the figures behind the Watergate exposure, expose. And Jimmy Brenton, Ace in the Hole tells a story of the hero of your book, really, Tip O'Neill. Hmm. Well, the night it was all over, we're all through for the whole summer. I didn't know whether I had a book or not. And I knew that they had a new president. That was a cinch. And it was just O'Neill and his assistant, Leo Deal, who's on crutches but really doesn't know it I don't think sometimes we're just going down these empty halls in the Capitol building and singing smoking a cigar singing that old Ace saloon song Ace in the Hole on the way to Boston to have a drink and go to the Cape you know it was let's all go over. back to the beginning Jimmy uh, Thomas Tip O'Neill majority oh. leader congressman from Massachusetts oh. many years is the guy in your book who you feel played a tremendous role yeah. in breaking yeah. it open yeah. and I uh, See, I was home doing a work on a novel about a construction worker in Queens that, I, to me, is very important, and I didn't intend to leave it. And I went to, in, the, in 1973, in the fall of 1973, I went to Chatham on Cape Cod to spend a weekend with a fellow who used to be here at the University of Chicago, Chuck Daly, a friend of ours. He's now at Harvard. Now, we're having lunch at a place called the Wayside Inn, and Tip O'Neill came in with his wife, Millie. They were closing their summer home in, on the Cape for the winter. And... He said, gee, I'm tired, but Millie's got me lifting all this furniture. So we sat down, and we were talking about the impeachment. And Daly had told me, and everybody had told me, that the most votes that could be mustered in the House of Representatives was 125 to impeach Richard Nixon at that time. That time and, was about... Uh, uh, September 1973. Now, you know, there was a feeling to get rid of him, yeah. but it, was very, it wasn't strong enough. And O'Neill said to me right that day at lunch, no, he said, I think it's all right. I think I can count pretty good. I think I can get that kind of vote to get him, out, get him impeached. They don't, I don't want to say anything what the Senate will do, but I think we'll impeach him in the House. 
Now, I couldn't believe that, but everybody in Washington then told me that this is the best arithmetic man on the floor of the house. He's always on the floor of the house, and he knows what's going on. And I said, gee, I think I'll hang around him a little bit then. So I said, I'll come down to Washington. Then when that, in the spring, whenever it starts, then when they had that Saturday night massacre after it, then it looked to me, as far as I was concerned, it was a lock. Being if he told me he could do it before that, imagine what he could do after with votes. So I went down to Washington in May, and my entire idea for a book was going to be to u using uh, O'Neill as a, as a weather vane to gather material and then to direct it all towards the day that Nixon was impeached by a vote of the members of the House of Representatives. Well, of course, he quit and I blew my third act. And I had all these notebooks I'd been gathering all summer and talking and spending a lot of time with O'Neill. And he said, well, I don't know what to do with him. I was just going to go home and forget about it. But I decided, oh, let me stop by. I had seen John Doerr during the summer. I never spoke to him because he was Doerr, not, the council. Yes, the, the council of the House Judiciary Committee. He's an old friend of mine. And I went over and sat down with him for a couple of hours. And then as he began to tell me the way he ran his operation all summer, the, 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 that was the lock, uh -huh. behind locked doors, the gathering of evidence, the compiling of the statements uh, against Nixon. And I found it fascinating. And then I began to go into a couple of more points. And at the end, I sat down and said, let me write a book and let me see what happens with it. And as so often happens, the one you bleed the least over it, it came out to be, everybody says it's the best thing I've done. Yeah, Isn't well, that's, that funny? That's, and I, I didn't bleed yeah. so hard with but it. But something happened here. It was Jimmy the journalist in this case. Here you were gathering things, but you also studying humans. You were studying certain kinds of people. Yeah. And this Tip O'Neill. Yeah. Now, why Tip O'Neill? He, he's, you know, he's a traditional politician. So that, which is, I, think, I thought it was a traditional political exercise yeah. that got rid of Nixon. This was no, uh, uh, these were not people from... The, the marches or from uh, the great cocktail parties for the California Farm Workers Union. These were old-fashioned, uh, I mean, and politicians. What led him to do it is, is, is the study of your book. You know, yeah. Why don't you describe, there's a chapter here of Jimmy Rose describing Tip O'Neill. Why don't you read that? It's also a sample of the writing, too. Oh, this thing about him here, huh? Yeah. Weighing as much as he does, O'Neill does not look like a figure who, ha who has had anything to do with history. The thinness, the austerity, and the haughtiness that glare at you from oil portraits of such men is totally absent in O'Neill. He comes with the full blood of Cork City in his face. A great head of silver hair allows O'Neill to be picked out of a crowd at a glance. He has a large bulbous nose that is quite red. Large blue eyes sometimes seem to be sleepy slow and have led a thousand victims into thinking that they were on the verge of winning. When he has a thick Daniel Webster cigar stuffed into one corner of his mouth, O'Neill appears to be a backroom politician who always has a drink or a contract in his hand. Someday, when he gets very old, I think O'Neill might say that no matter how far he went in life, how powerful he became, this appearance, as, terpre as interpreted by so many others, prevented him from going even further, from going to the places where his talents belonged. Because if you see in a man and say of a man only that he is a big, overweight, cigar-smoking, whiskey-drinking, back-pounding Boston politician, then somewhere over the years the man himself, somewhere deep down under the winces, could begin believing some of this himself, and his momentum would become diminished. In this case, the Protestant ethic has robbed us of our eyes. For if you see Tom O'Neill as he is, not as conformity forces us to see, then there is coming into the room a lovely spring rain of a man. That is the, that's really, to me, the basis of this portrait, mm. this guy. You mm. see a typical politician with a certain moment in his life and the life of the country that something unexpected happened. Happened, yes. This guy is unexpected, because he was generally a go-along guy. He was a go-along guy, and this was the one, for this one summer, he, he changed. I mean, he just didn't go along. He let's went along in another yeah. way. Now let's go back. Contrast to there's another Boston congressman, the, the Jesuit, who's very anti-war and very Father eloquent. Drynan. Father Drynan. Yes. Now, Drynan offered that original resolution mm -hmm. for impeachment. O'Neill felt better hold it for now. Yeah. The, the great word there was premature. Yeah. And that was the word that struck Father Drynan. They didn't tell him, you're crazy, or this is another wacky yeah. uh, uh, scheme from the left. He said, it's premature. Yeah. 
And that was when he thought that the first time that somebody else was thinking along with it. You know, that the guys in the back room were starting to talk. So a guy who ordinarily might not agree with him, certain many issues, would not agree with him. And this, he saw an ally, a traditional politician. Yeah, the the word premature brought him up very short. They go back to O'Neill, because he was originally, he accepted. You got a marvelous sequence here dealing with uh, O'Neill speaking in favor of the Vietnam War. He was briefed by the experts and then a student brought him up a short. Stu- a student brought him up short. He went to, uh, I guess that's Boston College. He'd spent much time at that time during the war, the uh, Vietnam War, the Pentagon would brief you eloquently on uh, our role in Southeast Asia and would send a person such as Congressman O'Neill out armed with all these arguments to face a college audience. I mean, if he were going out and he was going to Boston College, he asked for a briefing. They brought in everybody with the shoulders stooped from the brass on them and gave the gave him the line and he went to Boston College and said that I know you know the standard line was we know more than you do because I've been briefed 44 times by the president and the secretary of state and the joint chiefs of staff and one kid in the back of the audience when it was all over raised his hand he said yes he said have you ever been briefed by anybody on the other side of the question and he gave a good double talk Boston answered to it and everything else and got out gracefully. But when he went home that night, he says, geez, uh, that kid, uh, that kid that hit, me, hit me. That kid was right. right. Let's continue you know? with O'Neill now. This is interesting. Now, yeah. he, he told his constituents in his Boston area that he was now opposed to the war. But yeah. he, meantime, See, he LBJ gave him the arm. Yeah. See, this is how uh, the go-along uh, yeah. that, that set the stage for last summer. Was he, rather than come out and make a, a big sweeping public statement against the war, he, he wrote to all his constituents in the newsletter Congressman sent home that he was that decided he was now against America's position in the war. He told no one else about it. When the Washington Star found out about it, and they made it a big front page story, Lyndon Johnson called him up right away and came over and said, gee, how can you do this? I mean, we've been together all these years with Sam Rayburn and the Board of Education, they called it, and you were always in the inner circle with us. How can you do a thing like this? So O'Neill said, well, I think it's wrong. You know, the war's wrong. He said, all right, I respect your views. I don't think that you're doing it just because you've got Harvard as your constituency. I think it's better than that. But he said, but do me a favor. For an old friendship, don't uh, don't uh, keep getting headlines with it. So he said, there's a friend, on a, on a political friendship, yeah. O'Neill didn't do it, which I say is absolutely wrong. The man went along. Of course, here, here's a, a Breslin's writing in this respect, which I like so much, about O'Neill. His instinct might have taken him into the right direction, but his talent was betrayed by the life he'd lived, Yeah, which makes his actions against Richard Nixon all the more important. Mm. And then you see, we leave the full, his full career for others to divide. Much more important is that here, in this single rare instance, O'Neill, and other politicians we scorn, we'll come to them in a moment, mm. stood up, stood apart from their pasts. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. And took us to heights. Mm. Is this yeah. aspect, this is what makes the book so impelling. The well, guy stepped out of his framework. Well, I think Peter Rodino stepped out of his framework, certainly. Well, why'd you go, now we're talking about, O'Neill chose no Rodino. I, now we come well, to O'Neill's yeah. workings now yeah. as an arranger. Yeah. As a guy fixing well, it things was up. The, the, way, the way that worked was that at the time it was announced that there was going to be an, in, uh, an investigation of a, to see if there were grounds for impeaching the president. The first move by the White House and the, and the hardline Republican side was to call for a special committee, not to let the House Judiciary Committee have it, to form a special committee to investigate impeachment. Uh, under this situation... You see, they could, uh, the, uh, the Democrats would name their members and the Republicans would name theirs. If they took the House Judiciary Committee, they had to take the Republicans what was already on the committee. And they knew there was a Hamilton Fish Jr. They didn't trust him. They knew there was Israels back. They didn't know anything about him, McClory. They didn't want that. They wanted hardline guys. They wanted uh, 11 Wigginses, 12 Charlie Wigginses or Sandmans. They didn't want any, any other style. So what was happening was that Carl Albert, as the Speaker of the House, who was in charge of naming the committee, was naming which committee it was to go to, began to receive an enormous amount of phone calls from from, uh, business interests, oil and natural gas interests, which would be from his home state in Oklahoma, 
uh, saying that there should be a special committee and that don't give it to the judiciary. See, that was the White House on the phone, a business interest, the call Albert, put the pressure on him for this special committee. That, that's the one time Albert stood up at that time and said, no, he wouldn't do it. He was going to, told O'Neill, it's going to the judiciary. By this time, they'd already floated so many rumors around about Rodino's incompetence. How can you run a, a thing as important as an impeachment proceedings with this uh, little guy that nobody ever heard of? He's there on a fluke as the chairman of the Judiciary Committee. My God, it'll make the whole Congress look terrible. He's not capable. We've got to get someone else in there. And they had all kinds of candidates for it. I think Eckhart from Texas was an early candidate. Well, where's he from, where's he from Eckhart? He's Texas. Texas. Good yeah, around Eckhart. Houston region. That's yeah. where he's from. That's from him. Well, Very bright. The first thing O'Neill had to do was to go out on the floor then to carry out the idea of keeping Rodino when you start going to people and talking to them. And you just talk. And now we're getting into the way you can do things. Uh, you say he's, he has no actual power. There's nothing in the rule book that says O'Neill is a boss of anything. It's, it's just he could walk around. Now he'd listen to the complaints. And he'd hear that two old fellas, Mahan was one of them, uh, and uh, on the, these uh, committees, these committee chairmen said, it's a disgrace that this Rodino is going to get all this publicity, all this television and everything else. You know, that's how their minds that's run how, down That's how their minds run down How are they? He's going to get all that television. Who the hell is he to get it? We've been chairman of committees for a long time. We deserve more than he does. So you listen to that argument, and O'Neill would, and fine. And he listened. No, I didn't say, all right, old pal, I got to take a walk. And then he'd go over to a fellow like Sonny Montgomery, who was the fellow that if you tell, talk to him, he's from... Mississippi, he'll talk to the South. He gets around whether he knows he's doing it or not for you. So he'd say, Sonny, isn't it something for a fellow like Peter who's been with us all these years, never had a chance, never got anywhere. Wouldn't it be great to give him a couple of days in the sun and let him be on the television and be a big shot? And Sonny said, damn, I think you're right. I think that's a good idea. And, uh, and, and then he'd take a walk away, and Montgomery would, you know, tell a few people, "Why? Well, what's the matter? We never got anything. Let let one of, uh, you know, people who haven't been heard of so much, let him get something. So they started that argument. I mean, I'd see him then at the bar with a, Huey Carey then was uh, on the House Ways and Means Committee from New York. He's now the governor there, and he, he'd say to Huey, you know, that Peter'd be perfect for the job, wouldn't he? You know, we're drinking. You was absolutely that's our man. You know, just go along yeah. until you so, got it together. Why did he choose? Why did he choose Rodina? Because it's Tip O'Neill did the choosing. Well, it was case. it was Albert. It was Albert. Yeah. I, I, I caught you first. That, that, yeah. that made the thing that it was going to the House Judiciary Committee. They wanted uh, to keep it in. Yeah. That keeps the committee system going. They could they could operate on that grounds too. And his job was just to make sure that, that there was enough support to keep it that way. You also have a, a number of your insights here and conjectures. What if you know? Rodino was chosen, but what if Seller, who'd been for many oh, years, Emanuel Seller? I think that's, I think that's absolutely crucial. Why don't absolutely you a crucial go, thing? Go back. Emanuel Seller was the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. These are boring old stories. This is how life works. How perilously close you come yeah. to losing something just on quirks. Emanuel Seller was the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. He was what was he? Eighty years old, seventy-eight years old. Years came from years. Brooklyn. Uh, had a safe district, as you call it. Brilliant constitutional authority, had led great civil rights fights in the Congress in the past, a, a, a tremendous mind, a well-read man, but uh, an arrogant man and an abrasive guy. And I think he would have just split the thing. He would have split it. I, I'll, I was on the plane one day, and he said to me, he, he, well, we'll go into how he, he lost it. Now, what happens is there comes a, a primary for the uh, in in Brooklyn, and he is running in a Democratic primary against a congresswoman, a young woman yep. named Elizabeth Holtzman, whom nobody had ever heard of, a lawyer, young lady, and everybody laughed. Meet Esposito, the Brooklyn leader, call her a squaw. You know she's going to be around or something. Who the hell knows? I'd like to get her out of the race. And Seller said he wouldn't even dignify. Uh, this, he doesn't dignify the uh, her candidacy even by running. You know, he's just got it. And while they were making statements like that, Elizabeth Holtzman was down on the subway platform shaking hands and also passing out some literature dealing with sellers' business interests, which would have got him in conflicts of interest, which would have got him in a lot of trouble if he was the head of the judiciary. And she also came out against the war, too. And came out against the war strongly, which he did not do. Now, 
only 23% of the registered Democrats in that district voted in the election, and Elizabeth Holtzman won, as a result of which Emanuel Seller was out of Congress, and the number two ranking man on the House Judiciary Committee became the chairman. He was named Peter Rodino, was from Newark, New Jersey, and nobody had ever heard of him. And he took over, and he sat on this committee, which she had only handled some immigration bills. The members on, were placed on it because there's no patronage on that committee, and it's a safe place to put the Drynans and yeah. the Holzmans and the yeah. Charlie Wrangles. Yeah. They can't cause any trouble. Rodino, one year, had spent nearly 75% of his time in Newark, had not even come to Washington much. He was just a little so unknown fellow. all these little events that happened and non-events, and now he'd come to O'Neill, how he knew, go way back again, this involves also your journalism now, O'Neill, how he knew Nixon was impeached, would come to the matter now of extortion. I want to come to the matter of money raising and you know, yeah. twisting the arms sure. of certain guys. Well, so it was twisted in a way it never had been done in this country before. So you come to the case of uh, George <laughs> Steinbrenner, who, who was a shipbuilder owner of the Yankees. Yes. In, in 1972, they had these Democratic congressional dinners, which the congressmen raise money for their re-election campaigns, and they're very important to them, obviously, and they raise quite a bit of money, these dinners. So George Steinbrenner was the American shipbuilding guy from Cleveland, and he wanted to get mixed up in politics and be one of the, be around the fellas, and he wound up being the chairman of the dinner in 1970 and 1971, and the dinners did tremendously. They did very well. Now we come to 1972, and uh, O'Neill's job, the political end of his job, was to oversee that dinner. He was the congressional chairman of the dinner. Now, he sees at the end they brought him in because there were, the people had been slow coming up, buying tables to this dinner. And he said, what is all this? I mean, and so he starts calling up a fellow, call up uh, studs, how are you? And you'd say, fine, gee, we haven't heard from you, old pal. You know, we've got our dinner coming up here in April, and I'm just surprised I don't see your name on the list. And you'd say, geez, Tip, you've got to leave me alone. If IRS, a squad of six of them came into my business the other day, took all my books, and then they called me down, and in the middle of the whole thing, I got a phone call, told me to see Maurice Stans. And I went to see him, and he wants me to be the vice chairman of Democrats for Nixon in Illinois. And I better stay out of it because the IRS is leaving me alone as long as I'm doing this. So he heard from three or four people the same story. Then he finally spoke, said, where is George Steinbrenner? So he called George. He said, what's going on? I don't hear from you. Steinbrenner said, I got to see. I'm in a lot of trouble. So he came around and he talked to O'Neill and he said, I've got, I'm in trouble with the IRS. I'm in trouble with the Commerce Department and the uh, Justice Department's antitrust division. And uh, they, they told me in the middle of all this that I ought to see Herb Kahn back. And uh, so they want me to give $100,000 to be the head of Democrats for Nixon in Ohio. She said, George, I don't know what to tell you. We have no, no power. You know that Nixon he's got it all. But he said, I wish you wouldn't do the Democrats for Nixon. I don't know what to tell you on any other party of business. You're in trouble. What can I do for you? So Steinbrenner left the office, and he went over to see Kahn And Kahn gave him a list of committees. There were a list with... Loyal Americans for the president, uh, good Americans for Nixon. You know, they had committee names to which you can contribute, fronts, blinds. And he gave him these stapled sheets, and he wrote across the top of them. I have the thing home. It said 33 at 3 and 1 at 1. Yeah. That meant $3,000 each to 33 committees and 1000 to 1. That's $100,000. And as he pushed the paper at him, Kahnbeck said, that's about what you should do. And... So subsequently, uh, Steinbrenner was told that he was all right, he was in good shape because yeah. he gave this $100,000. Now, he he got himself in. I mean, he could get in trouble in a telephone booth, George, sometimes, I think. He's, yeah. he, and he, he had his employees, when the, when the uh, Watergate Special Prosecutor's <coughs> Office came after him over these, uh, over these campaign contributions, he had employees lying. And he wanted the employees to lie right through into a grand jury and get in trouble. This, he was he was getting in a lot of trouble. Case, but would, this know. was a this uh, I'm talking about the transgressions of one single citizen. Yeah, but 
when you match what he did wrong against using the United States government, the full facilities of it, to extort money from a guy, I mean, what he did is, is of nothing. The other guys call this protection. It's it's yeah, it's protection. It's extortion. Yeah. Uh, better men than than Herb Kambach have said, "Pay or die." Yeah. I mean, that's what that's, uh, that's well, what that's, a real guy would say. That's one of the phrases in your book. Uh, yeah. Just that. So, really talk about a gangster technique. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Except I think it was a, it was more serious than gangsterism. I think it was a, it was a, it was a straight attempt at fascism. And, and it can be called nothing left. And also less. the use of the IRS. It was fascism. So the use I of mean, IRS. What better way to put in this brand of uh, Nixon politics, which I refer to as, the, as American fascism, what better way to do it? Why arrest people and throw them into jail where they can scream and inflame people from a jailhouse window? The best way is to cripple the political organizations of the country, both the Republican and the Democrat, Democrats, by using the IRS against everybody, you'll frighten everybody, you'll drive everybody into a hole, then there'll be no political parties with any money except the committee to re-elect the president, and I think that committee to re-elect the president would have functioned in 1976. I don't think we would have had an election. And so this, when Steinbrenner spoke to Tip O'Neill yeah. back in 73, mm -hmm. that's when he had his, hey, this, this is impeachable stuff. Mm. He, he said to, um, to Carl Albert, he said, you better get Peter here and... Rodino came in, and he said, now, everything that I know from my life in politics tells me that these people have gone so far, have done so many things, that it, there is going to be no way to suppress it, that we are going to wind up with impeachment proceedings in this House, and we better be ready for it. This there is so much coming that we have no way to stop it, that he can't possibly keep everything down. I'm talking to Jimmy Breslin. We'll take a slight pause for a minute. The book is How the Good Guys Finally Won, and the subtitle is Notes from an Impeachment Summer. And this is the summer of uh, O'Neill's insights and gathering of all the information that indicates something quite remarkable can happen. And Viking, the publishers of Jimmy's book, will return in just a moment more of this conversation about money raising and about how O'Neill, in his own way, discovered that Nixon was taping everything. A minute. There's a beautiful line in Jimmy Breslin's book here concerning the matter of money raising. Great national heroes are as prominent as waiters when matched against a man who can raise big money for oh politicians. Boy. Under that old system, yes, sir. I mean, uh, the Watergate break-in, uh, Tip didn't think anything of it. He was most, still mostly concerned with the IRS this business. This is Tip only his nickname, Tip. Sure, yeah. he said, shoot if you must this old gray head, but don't you dare touch my dinner chairman, yeah. you know. So this is, yeah. Uh, you have, by the way, you've got all sorts of insight, little what I call piquant touches here about money raising. One involves Tip O'Neill going around with Kennedy when Kennedy was running for president. Oh, of course. About the raising of money and shoving cash in the pocket. Sure. Uh, that's no, there's no uh, immaculate conceptions in this business, which is why it made it all the more pleasurable last summer. He was an advanced man for John F. Kennedy in 1960 in Missouri, and Bush the Brewer said to O'Neill one day, I can get 30 guys together at a breakfast if you could get Kennedy here and we'll give him $1,000 each, $30,000. So O'Neill's answer was exactly what it should be. What time do you want him there? Well, they made the date and Kennedy came, of course, and came into the room with a private dining room at a motel near the St. Louis airport and they were all sitting there over a cup of coffee. And Kennedy came in, said hello, and he looked right at O'Neill and O'Neill gave him the money nod. We got the, the scores in. And uh, Kennedy said, excuse me, gentlemen, could I see you for a moment? Tom to O'Neill, and the two of them went out and repaired to the men's room. And uh, O'Neill said, now, Jack, I have $17,000 in, in checks here and $12,000 in cash. That's what it came to for the breakfast. Uh, what do you want me to do with it? So Kennedy said, give the, 17, uh, give the checks to Kenny O'Donnell, the 17000 in checks, and uh, I'll take the cash. And he took the cash and put it in his inside pocket. Jack Kennedy did so. O'Neill said, geez, you know, Senator Kennedy, let me tell you, this business is the same whether you're running for ward leader or for president yeah. of the United States, yeah. for crying out loud. That's a story yeah. out of politics as, as it was, as we know it. I, you're not condoning it, but that's the way life went on. It's fun. Well, I mean, it was not fun, but it was never an amateur game. It was never softball uh, or uh, a walk through the park. It was, it was a heavy contact business. But this... 
of coming in with IRS and Commerce Department and Justice Department antitrust, specifically for political reasons. I mean, now you're dealing with you have a, something that touched on. I think a few of the critics, well, they've got some excellent reviews, very really enthusiastically received. But a few, uh, one or two have mentioned the theological aspect of this book. You speak here of Nixon unable to recognize the fact that he might fail, and you speak of there's there's you got to have a sense of original sin here. Sure, you talk about a Catholic approach. Oh, absolutely, sure. Why don't you expand on that a little? Well, I just returned to, to my schooling there. That's all. When they were sitting on the tap, but then I, I, I began. The more I, the more I looked at the way they stumbled and fell and blew that whole game, the more I began to get driven back from whence I come. I, I think original sin is the, in the Catholic philosophy. I think it's, I think a strong belief in original sin prepares you for failure and prepares you to handle failure. You know you're doomed. You know you're, you're doomed. And you know that you've got to externalize that guilt and that sin in order to survive. And otherwise, you, you'll just you'll wind up with... If you keep evil and sin inside you, and you don't confess it, you don't externalize it, put it into the hands of a third-party intermediary, such as we do in a Catholic confessional booth, uh, as we did in a Catholic confessional booth, uh, I think that it that it it just rests inside and festers and it produces a self hatred, which manifests itself in that Nixon finger pointing that uh, uh, nobody drowned at Watergate. You start accusations against others at all times, never once considering your own problem. So I I they always said he was a born loser and I disagree. I think the fellow was not prepared for any loss at all. He had no way to handle it because he had no belief in. In, in how to handle, he had no idea of how you handle your own sins and your own guilt, what to do with it. Yeah. Externalize it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's my, that's, hey, that's my. We, we'll have a debate on that, not now. No, no that's a, we'll, we'll have it in the church some no, Sunday. We, we, we'll pick a neutral. Oh, I know what I want. Before I ask you about, this concerns Nixon on this inability to read find out who he is, really what he is, his obsession with the tapes and Tip O'Neill's mm, mm, mm. Mm. Realization that he was taping everything. He was see he was seated one day with yeah. him and some others. It started others. the night the Vietnam War ended. He told me he kept notes on these things by this time. And Nixon had in before the he went on television to tell the nation the war was over finally. That he had in uh, Mansfield, uh, O'Neill, Albert, uh, the congressional leaders, uh, Scott, people like that. And they all sat down, they had dinner at the, in this dining room he had in the executive office building, a big working dining room, lovely place. And during the dinner, uh, following the dinner, uh, Nixon was to leave and to go out on television, and they would sit there and watch it so they wouldn't write the story to the press and then leave. Well, O'Neill said, I want to ask one question, and I won't ask it of you, President Nixon, because I, I don't want to embarrass, you know, you here tonight. So I'll ask it of uh, Henry Kissinger. He said, no, I was very friendly with Lyndon Johnson during that long war, and I knew what it was doing to him, and I knew at all times he thought... This is Tip talking. Yeah, this is Tip O'Neill talking, that Lyndon Johnson always thought that the war could be ended very rapidly by military action to it, bombing Hanoi heavily and mining Haiphong Harbor. That would end it. But... In order to do that, he had to have the security of mind that China and Russia would not take that as an act of war and come into the war and start World War III. He attempted, this is O'Neill talking, Johnson attempted many times to contact the Russians and Chinese to see if it would be all right with them for him to pursue this course. He never heard anything from them, and therefore he was afraid to go forward with this course for fear of World War III. So now this is still O'Neill talking. He said, now my question, uh, Mr. Kissinger, is that you must have had an agreement with the Chinese and the Russians which allowed you to mine Haiphong Harbor and bomb Hanoi simultaneously and bring this, the military part of this war to an end. And Nixon broke right in and he said, I'll answer that question. You don't have to answer that question, Henry. I'll answer that question myself. He said, there was no implied agreement with Russia or China I did this on my own. The president took this step on his own. 
I had no implied agreement with Russia and China. I did this after listening to my military experts. Then I made this decision. It was a lonely decision. And as he's talking and kept talking about himself and how he did this thing, this marvelous thing, which ended the war and brought our prisoners home on their standing up, not on their knees, as I always say. Remember how he talked, Nixon? He was pointing towards the chandelier in the ceiling and looking up at it a little bit, and his hand was waving at it. Then as he got deeper into his emotion of how he had done this alone, uh, uh, Tip says he, he was looking up at the thing mm. and pointing at it. And on there, sitting at the table with the cigar, and he says, this guy's got to be kidding. He has this place bugged. He's talking <laughs> into the chandelier for himself. Now, for history. For history. Now, which is going to lead me to a theory. Now we go to some time later, and the Arab-Israeli conflict has been settled. There was a peace settlement after that Yom Kippur War. The congressional leaders are at the White House again, and Nixon is there. By this time, however, the taping system had come to light during the Irving Committee hearings, and he had no more tapes, and he was just sitting there talking. And he said, you know, to get this thing settled in the Middle East to get any kind of an agreement at all, we had to have the cooperation of the Russians because their propaganda machinery in the Mideast is so huge that we wouldn't have been able to get a thing done at Geneva or, or, or in man-to-man talks without the Russians helping us. And then he looked up and with that quickly, and he looked at them all and said, the same way we ended the war in Vietnam, we never could have done it without the Russians and Chinese guaranteeing us they wouldn't come into it if we bombed Hanoi and mined Haiphong Harbor. See? With no tapes. Now, this is the theory that comes out of that. When he was talking into those tapes by himself with these great statements, he was setting a, 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 an oral history of his administration to prove he was the greatest man in the history of the world. He, was doing, he, must, have, he must have been talking into these tapes yeah. incessantly, how great he was. The thought then would be they would take all these tapes whenever he would leave the administration, if indeed he ever would. I thought he was going to try and stay on as some kind of an overseer of the country and allow some other pet to come in as a fraudulent president. They could edit these tapes, get rid of all that Watergate stuff and all the cursing and all the nonsense, and only concentrate on these reels and reels of Nixon talking about how great he was, and then he could leave it for you, and it would be in libraries all over the all over the world. Here is the oral history of the greatest man ever to live. I think that's what he was doing. That's why he didn't want to burn them, in my estimation. He thought he had so much. So Tip O'Neill, this time, is adding things up, and the case now is building in his mind. He's adding oh, all these things up sure, by now. Sure. And so we come to a few other aspects in your book that are you know, quite s- astonishing. That there was no uh, learning process. Magruder, who seemed to be, who seemed to have lear- been contrite and learned his lesson, while he's in the pokey, he's saying there's a scheme to get Rodino. Mm. This is amazing. One for, they got things worked out even after it was all over, after the confession. I can't understand uh, Magruder at all. They, somebody just told me in Cleveland, I was there, that he's coming around, going on radio and television with a paperback edition of that book he wrote or something. I mean, he's still out. I hate the tell he's, you. I hate to tell you, but the book that he wrote, there was a booksellers convention that yeah. members were at in Washington. Yeah. Guess who had the biggest line of fans? Magruder. Right. Well, I would ha- <laughs> I, I, I could give you some good news then. He sold exactly six books in the Higby store, which is the largest bookstore in Cleveland. Hard but nonetheless, cover. the point nope. is you're telling a guy More named important. Gallagher. Guy named Here's Gallagher. what happens. This, it, it, this is an amazing kid. I'd, uh, someday, if I had the time and I could... Uh, uh, divorce myself from taste. That sit down and just take a look at what he was, what he is. I guess he's a fine specimen. He's a young man on the make, is what he is. Well, you get right down to it. Could be a lot less than that. No, young man on the make might not even be that good. Well, at any rate, he he was uh, Neil Gallagher had been sentenced to a year and a half. Former Congressman Cornelius Gallagher from Bayonne, New Jersey, was sentenced to uh, a year and a half for income tax evasion and was placed in Allenwood Prison Camp in Pennsylvania. He'd been in for some time when, when the Jeb Stuart Magruder drew four months out of the Watergate situation, and he, too, arrived in, in uh, Allenwood Prison Camp. Before uh, he arrived, however, he'd done his book, and he'd been on all his shows, and he said, uh, you know, what a good boy am I. I've, I've recanted. Re- everything's fine. I'm never going to do this again. Any wrongdoing. Now, Neil Gallagher had had stories written about him during his trouble uh, which uh, said that he had connections, as they say, to underworld people in the 
Newark, Bayonne area of New Jersey, which is where Peter Rodino comes from. Well, Nixon, who believed that all Italians were crooked, had most of Rodino's friends thoroughly questioned by federal agents to see if there was anything wrong. Rodino knew what was going on, that they were investigating him heavily. At this juncture, this is last June, into the prison comes Magruder. And he, as he came in, he asked for Neil Gallagher. And the first night at dinner in the, in the prison camp, he looked up Neil Gallagher and he said, I hear you play tennis. And Gallagher said, yeah. So he said, we'll play. And they went out and they had this rough tennis court they dug out of the hills there. And they played tennis and during the, during the course of the game, Magruder wanted to talk to him and he said, look, you know that we're going to get Rodino. There's plenty on him, and we're going to get it. And uh, all you have to do is help us really nail it down, and I can get it right back to the White House right away. The country will be revolted by the information that Rodino's connected to some hoodlums, and the impeachment will stop, and the president will survive, and I'll be all right, and you'll be all right. Now, what do you think of that? And uh, Neil just... You know, you, you're talking to a fellow in prison. You, you're catching fellas in dazes. You know, nobody's thinking properly there. And it, he just let it pass by, and but Magruder told him a, a second time came up to him and talked. Now, I knew they had talked because I had a friend in the can who saw them talking like this. So I, I knew that there was one party had seen it. So guy ran second to a United States attorney in a matter involving some theft in Brooklyn of Treasury notes. A fellow was in there. So... Uh, when he hears this the second time, uh, Neil Gallagher gets a dime, and it takes you three hours to wait online to make a phone call from that camp, and he, they have one pay phone, and he called Washington to tell John Murphy, who's a congressman from New York, but who had been close to Gallagher, uh, just what was going on. This kid is saying that they have something on Peter and uh, they're about to spring it and they want me to help them out and they, they, he's acting like there's something going on. So Murphy immediately put down the phone, walked right into the well, right onto the floor of the house, right to the well, and went right up to Tip O'Neill and told him about it. And O'Neill did just what, uh, what you would do rather than think about it or mull it over or let's discuss this. He just walked right over to Rodino and sat down with him and said, Peter, this guy is calling from the jail and says they're going to connect you and that they've got something on a, a lot of people. Uh, maybe they've got something. How do we stand here? You know, where, do we, where does everybody stand? Have we got anything coming out of the woodwork? And Rodino very, just held himself together, didn't get mad, and he said, absolutely not. And on this, so fine, that ends it. There's no more discussion. Yeah, but there, someone said, or Rodino is listening now to the tapes. Now the, the judiciary yeah. committee is right to hear the tapes. Yeah. Now here's something that's on tape. Yeah. One day, Rodino listened to the voice of Richard Nixon speaking to John Ehrlichman and said, the Italians, we mustn't forget the Italians. We must do something for them. The, uh, we forget them. They're not, uh, we, uh, they're not like us. Difference is the, they smell different. Mm. They mm. look different, act different. After all, you can't blame them. Oh, no, no, can't do that. They've never had the things we've had. That's right, Ehrlichman said. Nixon's voice dropped. Of course, the trouble is, now his voice went even lower. Mm -hmm. The trouble is, you can't find one that's honest. Yeah. Now, Rodina, of course, was shocked. Her, but why didn't he reveal this, what, what Nixon that's said? His style, from what I know, would be, when he listened to a thing like that, he asked Hutchinson, the senior Republican on the Judiciary Committee, if it would be all right to place this tape aside, not touch it, it'll be in the archives, it'll be in American property forever, but if, because of its, in Rodino's judgment, inflammatory nature, it could, not, it could be excluded from the hearings going before the committee for impeachment. Now, that is his style. Whether you agree with it or not, I happen to think uh, myself, I waver. When I talk to him, you can see that he didn't want it in there. I talk to myself, I would have played it out loud for the whole country to hear. Uh, I think it was revealing of Nixon's, uh, so revealing of Nixon's character that, it, that it, it, it must come out. It must someday, when they're released, the whole world should hear it. He, uh, Rodino at this time, in, in his ward, in his home ward in Newark, which is heavily Italian, had been stoned by the people because the Italians were the last to want to see any change in government and they wanted Nixon in there. 
They had voted for him very heavily, you remember, Italian people in this country. And if he released that tape, it would have done himself a great deal of good for his own personal political situation. I think it would have done uh, the impeachment proceedings an awful lot of good because of, it would have eroded any strength in that area Nixon had. And I think it would have been healthy. But Rodino's that very, very, he wanted uh, dignified. He wanted everything so dignified at this stage that he didn't want anything that he regarded this low and inflammatory introduced into the proceedings. Now, that was the way he was yeah. doing things. Wow. And, uh, you know, we can argue with him, except for one thing. I think his record for the summer was pretty yeah. good. It's a tough record but, to crack. Time, there's something else in here. You, you have a very interesting insight here. Supreme Court on busing, the Supreme mm -hmm. Court on the mm -hmm. tapes. Mm -hmm. The Supreme Absolutely. Court came through Absolutely. on the tapes. Ah, well, well, the Supreme Court voted. I was in the court, uh, courtroom when they came in. Uh, eight to nothing that Nixon had to give the tapes to surrender the, his tapes to uh, Jaworski, the special prosecutor. Uh, it was filled, it was said to be a glorious day for American justice. You, could hardly, you couldn't get into the courts. They were cheering on the steps outside for Jaworski. And as the door opened uh, and the justices came in, I took one look at that Douglas and I saw a little, little smile on his face and you knew that ball game, you know, that was taken yeah. care of, that Nixon was But I'm thinking through. But yeah. That's a thing to do with tapes, and it was a clear cut, and it didn't involve uh, the problem in this country, which is much bigger than any Richard Nixon, and that's the, the difference in colors of skins and the problems it's causing the country. Now, the next day, with very few people in the United States Supreme Courthouse, the justices came back in with a decision in the Detroit Metropolitan School Busing case, in which they ruled that. You cannot mix the suburbs and the inner city in your busing plans because it just it's not with not Douglas dissenting. Douglas dissented violently and bitterly, but uh, violently with words. Uh, it which showed me that once again that the Supreme Court, when it's given an abstract issue such as uh, executive privilege, as against uh, the uh, no man is above the law theory. They can think v rather clearly on it and produce a, a, a decision uh, unanimously. But when they have to make a decision based upon people and the conflicts uh, of human beings, they have a terrible time and, and they, uh, they inevitably come down on the side that will increase the trouble. You know, you have a great line here. I'm looking for it now on this, uh, defining the two decisions. One. Well, they knew, one one, they knew under one that across the street in the House of Representatives by this time, O'Neill could count on a pair of 300 votes for impeachment. They knew that. Yeah. They, the Supreme Court justices go to cocktail parties. They have telephones. You know, the old Finley Peter Dunn, Finley Peter Dunn, the Supreme Court follows the election. The, the election, and they read the newspapers. Was the, line, sure. the line I was looking for somewhere, I'll paraphrase it, Jimmy, not as well as you wrote it, and that's that the tapes, tapes don't have a color, and tapes don't bleed. No, tapes no. don't cry. Yeah, something yeah. like that. There something was something yeah, well, I mean, in the meantime, the next decision left Detroit in a, in a, in the same position it had been, and it, and it's now as a result of which you've got the the color situation so bad. I see. Well, what do you see on the television? Black and white cops slugging. And then, it Jimmy, out. you also toward the end, you speak of this tremendous event and traditional politicians, notably a guy like Tip O'Neill. Uh, going outside his frame, and yet you see some of the, you got the Reverend Moon, you watch these kids now, mm. we hear a great deal of mysticism on kids and Jesus freakism, uh, Reverend Moon kids about uh, defending Nixon, you have this too, so you mm. felt a sadness here, you thought of the kids in the anti-Vietnam protests, you see a shift here too. Mm. 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 And Nixon compared himself with Gandhi in one spot there. Oh yeah, he called a friend of mine up, I had one friend in the White House, who had a fairly good position there, and uh, well, it's, it's it would all, the only one I would know would be Leonard Garment from Brooklyn. I mean, let's I, I, I didn't use his name out of deference to him, but it's obvious who it was. Nixon called him up the night before uh, he was to leave on his helicopter to the plane and go out to the coast. And he said, uh, well, it's, I guess uh, they want to really pile on and put me in jail. And, uh, well, I guess, I guess it's not going to be that bad because uh, all I need is a table. You can do a lot of political writing, do a lot of writing. There's no telephone to bother you in jail. Just give me a table and some paper and a pen and I can go to work. He said a lot of great political writing has been done in prison. Gandhi went to prison, you know. And I think what he was doing there, I think Nixon was 
kept talking about prison to a lot of people, and uh, the people in turn would go around and talk to others as part of a campaign to put pressure on Ford. You know, you can't have this guy. I have a lot of people calling up saying you can't have this guy going to prison. You know, to, to give him a pardon. Give me your books finished now, and that, uh, a lot of people are going to read the book. Mm. And it's a study of many things. It's it's not the traditional, what has been traditional Watergate study exposés that we know. It's something else about certain politicians at work at a certain time, particularly one, Tip O'Neill. It's a mm. quite marvelous portrait. And before we hear Ace and he, uh, the book ends with his singing to his friend Ace in the hall. He's going yeah. back home. The job is done. Mm. Any, any postscript you have, anything, before we hear Ace in the Hole once again. The book is Jimmy Breslin's How the Good Guys Finally Won Notes from an Impeachment Summer, and the style is such that uh, it reads like a house of fire. Naturally, it's Breslin, and it's Viking the publishers. Sure. What's your, uh, any postscript? No, it's just it's a very pleasant surprise. For, for yeah. Makes a lovely spring. I, I wanted to do one piece of this huge thing to be able to say I'd written something about it. I didn't want to go through a life not writing about this thing in some form, leave it. I didn't think it would, I just didn't think this, I thought there'd be so much coming out that it would really be just a small offering on a large list, but it turns out to be considerably more than that. Well, the others didn't have this sort of insight, and so no. you have an ace in the hole. Yeah, this time I do, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> And crap shooters, they congregate around the metropole. They wear those flashy ties and collars, but where they get their dollars, they've all got an ace down in a hole. Now, some of them write to the old folks for coin, and that's their ace in the hole. While others have gas on that old tenderloin, and that's their ace in the hole. 